Over this series, we're in Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 28 through 30. And each week, as we've just kind of been progressing up this marvelous mountain of truth, it almost seems like we're reaching the top, but we're not quite there yet. And each vantage point that we gain as we take each step just opens up new perspectives. And I couldn't help think, but over the time, looking at the congregation, knowing that there are people at different places all over in regards to what they're suffering and facing in life. So when we come into Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30 here, ultimately what I want on all of our hearts in this is that whatever we're suffering, whatever you're going through in difficulty, however you're having to work and your heart being shaped in the midst of this, understand it isn't that you're not alone in this process as the Lord is working, as we'll see demonstrated from this text. And again, I, the last couple of weeks, I, I've spent the last two weeks in verse 28. I promise you I will finish these two verses this morning. I have to because I did the last hour, so we have to keep up. But, but I, the riches, again, even in verse um, 29 and 30, the the five points that Paul brings out there, each one of those deserves one whole sermon just to look at, at least in the riches of the truth laid out here. But I, I am overwhelmed by the working of God as he moves in the hearts of uh, our own hearts and he directs. That the promise of Romans eight twenty eight, God is working all things together for good, is a promise that continually is demonstrated every day in the Christian life. Every circumstance, every situation, every pressure of life, the Lord is directing and moving in that. And that became uh, clear to me even yesterday. Um, yesterday, my wife and I and the kids were sitting down in the living room and we were talking and my wife said to me, um, what do we do? What do you want to do for dinner tonight? I'm like, well, I already know what we're doing. It's a Valentine's dinner. I'm thinking in my mind. I'm, she starts to give a few options of things. Well, do you want this, this, this thing or that? And I'm like, no, it's already prepared for us. She's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, we're going to the Valentine's dinner to, you know, tonight. Well, you have to recognize that uh, in our home, my wife is the event coordinator. If she hasn't planned it, it doesn't happen. You know, it's a uh, She's the social planner for all of that, and when the Valentine's dinner came out, uh, she was out of town, and I recognize she's out of town, so I decided I will be a dutiful husband. I will sign us up for that. <laughs> but I failed to, in my duty to go the next step of communicating that I actually was doing that. And uh, in the midst, my wife had written off the event and were not doing it. In fact, she had told many people who asked her, are you going, what's going on, uh, no, we're not going to be there. One person had told her, um, your, your husband's praying, and I, no, they'll find somebody else. <laughs> She's, she was completely, this is not happening. And uh, until, of course, uh, yesterday when I said, no, we are signed up for this to go. And it was at a good time for us, because we had just, you know, going through burdens throughout the week, and maybe secretly in her heart hoping that I did something romantic in her life, that uh, I actually showed some kind of attention in some way. She was quite thrilled, and it was a joy to be with God's people. But I recognize in the midst of that, this was in the Lord's providence and kind, kindness. He was moving in events from weeks ago that at the time in which it came out, it was a benefit for our own Life And there's just so many ways that we can look back in God's providence and see that. 
God is moving and directing. And he's moving and directing in all of our lives in many different ways to prove the truth of this very verse, that behind all things he is working for our good, accomplishing good purposes, that he is conforming us to the glorious image of his Son. There's no random event happening. There's nothing that has caught God off guard in our life. There's nothing that has come upon us that God isn't masterfully working for a good purpose for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. In fact, this is the truth that the scriptures regularly comfort us with. The truth that the scriptures regularly comfort us with is that God is active in our salvation. And honestly, that's an encouragement. Because if it was resting on my perseverance, on my strength, on my wisdom, and my knowledge, I would certainly fall short. Don't have the energy every day. Don't have the same insight every day. Don't have the same you know, hardness of heart at times that keep back from doing the right thing. But God is active in salvation. Think about these few verses, and I'll just read a couple, and you can just listen and meditate on these verses, but catch the emphasis of God's activity. For example... Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The emphasis is on God's activity. And it was even before we got involved, even before we did something good, even before we demonstrated we were worthy to be received, before any of that, he saved us, and he saved us according to his mercy. He renewed us by his Holy Spirit. He is active in that work. Paul says this to Timothy, kind of in the same vein, in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. He says to Timothy, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I mean, he calls Timothy to this high privilege. Get ready, Timothy, to suffer in the gospel of God. Why? Verse 9. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. A high privilege to me that you have in sharing the gospel and going out in ministry comes because he saved us. He rescued us. He called us. He worked. He is calling us into this purpose and he is working with a purpose which was granted to us in Christ Jesus when from all eternity he's been pouring this out and preparing and working and directing to accomplish these things. I love what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, when he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, now here's the key, made us alive together with him. God is active. He's very active in our work. Peter says that God has, by his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God is active, making us alive, and he's doing this by his purpose, by his power, It's his love. He made us alive. He caused us to be born again. He saved us. He showed mercy, and he did it all before our works were even manifest. 
That is the testimony of the Scriptures all the time of God's regular activity of rescuing. And that's clear. When God wants to demonstrate Himself, He's saying to us in many places throughout the Scriptures, I am a God who rescues sinners. I'm a God who is active to call out His people and draw His people to Himself and to demonstrate the riches of His mercy and grace to them important for us to see because we know and in the midst of this God is active in everything that happens in our life to direct us ultimately for this good the manifestation in our salvation we're tempted at times when we think about sovereignty to jump then and start talking about God bringing evil into our life and God directing towards unrighteousness and God reprobating but the scriptures don't let us go that far James 1.13 says that. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God, when he wants to make himself clear, says of this, I work all things for good to those who are called according to a purpose. I'm directing. I'm accomplishing my good purposes. And that's what's manifested in this passage is the good that God is at work accomplishing for our salvation. Now just notice the words that Paul brings out here. I'll just read verses 28 through 30. Here's what Paul says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a marvelous promise in this verse that brings a comfort to all of us. But it is not an indiscriminate promise that everybody has a right to. This is a promise for God's people. That's what he says there. And literally, the, the, as we saw last week, the word emphasis is, to those who love God, that's the starting part, he works all things for good. This is for God's people. The first, what we saw then about this promise, there are three aspects to the promise we saw. The first, we saw the people of the promise. Who has the right to this promise? It is those who love God. They have the right. Those who love the things of God, they love the ways of God, they love the righteousness of God, they love God's holiness, they delight in God's glory, they delight in God's ways, these who love God. And you can go back, you're like, well, how do I know my heart loves God? What's the test? Well, turn to the book of 1 John, start working to the test. Do you confess sin? Do you walk in righteousness? Do you love the brethren? Do you abide in the apostles' teaching? Do you follow Christ and abide in Christ? Walk through the various tests. You can look at your heart according to those tests. You say, yeah, there are areas I'm doing well, areas I'm not doing well. I want to be consistent in all these areas that the love of Christ abides in me, that I know I love God. Because if I know that God's love is abiding within me, I have assurance and I know that this promise here in Romans eight twenty eight is true. Then whatever I'm facing, God is at work moving in this time 
God, the people that promise then are those who love God. Secondly, then we saw last week the work of the promise. What was the work? God works all things together for good. And again, I emphasize to you, this was not the work on the front end, but on the back end, that whatever the the events happen, God's at work in those things, conforming us, as we're going to see, to the image of his Son. That's the promise, that there's no, no event comes upon you randomly that takes you outside of the will of God, outside of his directing. Nothing has happened throughout your life that God isn't working into for a particular purpose. And we're going to draw out that purpose again this morning for us. But there is a work, and this is the hope for us. So I don't have to despair that I'm heading into some kind of present difficulty with an aimlessness as if it's just some random chance that brought this upon me and I just got dealt a bad deck. You know, I just had this random chance that hurt me in this way and I'm suffering and no no one cares. No, God is working through these things to do something particularly good in your life to conform you to the image of his son. So that's to the third quality of the promise, or the third aspect of this promise is this, the security of the promise. And we saw that at the end of verse 28. To those who are called according to his purpose, this rests, the promise rests, not in the power of our love, not, it, it rests in the work of God. He called us. He is securing this work. He is starting this work. He is directing this work. And this is then where Paul picks up on the security in verse 29 through 30. And in our remaining moments this morning, this is what I want to draw out for you. But before I do that, just one little tangent. I pray you follow me with this for this sake. Because one of the things that I'm, I am concerned about when we suffer, whatever we suffer, uh, we feel isolated. You begin to think, if I'm suffering, suffering through an illness, suffering through a trial, suffering through a difficulty in any way, what happens to us is we isolate, we pull away, we're suffering. And for various reasons, sometimes we isolate because I don't want someone else to see me suffering. I don't want, you know, I don't want the, you know, the pity that comes upon, I don't want them to view lesser of me. We do it in pride, you know, I, I should have it all together and I don't in this case. Whatever the reason, we begin to isolate and the body separates. But that's not God's design. Let me show you this. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is just a little tangent. It's not in the text. I'd fail homiletics for it, but it's important for shepherding. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. This is the reminder for all of us in the midst of this. Paul gives a perspective to the Corinthians here about how they are to view themselves and everybody else. He says it like this, starting in verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less of a part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were a hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And now Paul is giving an explanation to the Corinthians that we are all parts of the body and all different parts of the body. Some are feet and some are hands and some are eyes and some are ears. All has a different, different role, different function, different part of the body, but all necessary for the body to operate. He goes on, and from verses 19 through verse 24, begins to describe the weaker parts or the the more personal or private parts and say they're not less important because they're hidden. In fact, they're more important and should be shown more honor because of their sensitive parts. And then he, where I want to draw our attention is verse 25 through 27, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If another member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Friends, what I wanted to point out to this, and as it relates back to Romans, and you can turn back to Romans 8 in this, what I wanted to point out is this, that none of us head into this personal directing of God in our circumstances and trials alone. We head into it corporately as a body of believers. You suffer, I suffer with you. You burdened, I'm burdened with you. You are, and we are all burdened together as we bear this out. And that becomes very true here when we work at verses 29 through 30. And the setting of the framework, and I'll tie it together at the end, but just put in your mind this. While we head into these difficulties, while wherever the Lord shall take us, he takes us there corporately. Now let's just look at what Paul is unpacking here in this passage because he gives us five aspects of God's work. So my remaining moments will cover these five aspects of God's work. Foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, and glorified. And as I said, every one of those themes is worthy of a sermon in and of itself. But I'm sure that if I did that, this would be a seven-part series and you would just get tired. So we will, uh, we will look at it in one passing. First brought out there in verse 28 is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. For whom he foreknew. What is foreknowledge? knowledge. Here's the definition from the Dictionary of Theological Terms. The little longer definition, but it's okay if you can't write it all down, you can get the notes online. So here's what, uh, here's what uh, the dictionary says. It's a biblical term that literally means to know in advance. Theologians view foreknowledge as referring to God's selective choice of individuals or groups of people with whom to enter into a loving relationship. Foreknowledge understood in this sense is more than simply knowing events in advance of their happening, because the scriptures seem to use this term in a more relational than chronological sense. Thus, 
The foreknowledge of God involves God's favorable disposition to certain people even before they existed. I think that's the right idea. You can use it maybe like the term of James White. James White writes in his book, The Potter of Freedom, describing this idea of foreknowledge. He says in that book that to foreknow means to forelove, to set one's love upon, or set his love upon from before. God shows his love to his people to foreknow. Literally, the term means to know before something happens. And it referenced Paul when he was speaking to the Pharisees. They knew what he was going to do. They knew, um, they knew about him and his testimony of his ministry. So they had a knowledge that had lasted from long ago. So in that sense, it means understanding. But in the particular sense, when God directs it towards his people, it has this emphasis of his showing a love for a particular group from eternity past. Evident of that would be this. You just read through the Old Testament. And you don't see in the Old Testament God saying, I, I foreknew the you know, Midianites or any other nation. It is, I knew Israel. These are my people. I've called by my name. It was his setting his affection or attention on his people. That's the idea here in foreknowledge, that God knows exactly what is to take place, and more than that, just not just omniscience here, this is the setting of his love on a particular group. Before they existed, before they did anything, before they even operated. So Paul starts this chain of, of salvation, this glorious chain with this, that God in an eternity past knows his people. He's not confused by it. He is not surprised. He knows them perfectly. This leads to the second element. He predestined. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. I love this particular truth. Again, here's the definition from the theological dictionary of the New Testament, or theological terms. It says this, the sovereign determination and foreknowledge of God, predestination. Some theologians connect divine predestination with the central events of salvation history, especially the death of Jesus as foreordained by God. The doctrine of predestination more specifically holds that God has from all eternity chosen specific people to bring into eternal communion with himself. Is the broad idea of predestination. God has chosen people to be brought to himself. But notice this context here in verse 29. Paul doesn't talk about that per se, though that would be an implication, just God bringing to himself. There is something more particular that God is driving to in this predestination. God is specifically driving us to become conformed to the image of his son. It's not just, I'm picking these for salvation. I'm taking these so I can glorify them, jump to the end. No, I am setting my love and predestining these ones to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. I say it like this. 
no one who has believed the gospel, who has professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I believe that God is, you know, my God, that he's holy, I'm a sinner, that I believe that God was raised from the dead, uh, that Christ was resurrected, he's ascended in heaven now, I'm waiting for his turn, I have faith in him, he's my Lord. No one says that and is not conformed into the image of the Son. Anyone who says and believes those things are then going to be conformed into the image of his Son. Why? Because verse 29 tells us, These whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And say this, how would I know that somebody has believed those things? Well, I just simply look, is this person being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, why would that be important? Notice as the verse continues on. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I don't know how you read that, but that might sound a little strange. What do you mean, firstborn? Like he gets to be the oldest? I mean, is this a matter like, well, he gets the oldest and he gets some privileges? Um, I mean, certainly that's the way it worked in my house. I was the oldest, so basically I was the bossy one. My siblings just did what I said because I was the oldest. That's not the idea here. Well, Christ gets to be the oldest. He gets to be the, the uh, first. The idea here is preeminent. He gets to have the preeminent spot. He gets to be in the first place of all that come after. He is the preeminent one. I was thinking about this because I, I recognize this, the value behind this. When, when we were kids, uh, and this will get to show my age a little bit, when I was a kid, uh, you know, sports heroes, and we look to, and everyone wants to be about a particular sports hero. So my sports hero you know, the jingle goes, I want to be like Mike, right? And you begin to recognize uh, Michael Jordan. So that was, you know, you bought the shoes that Michael Jordan wore, you drank the drink that Michael drank, you would go and put on the jersey that he had, you go play basketball, you'd mimic his moves so that you would be just like Michael Jordan. What was it ultimately doing? You were highlighting the greatness of this athlete by all of these people modeling him. One thing about this, this is, I want to be like Christ, we're being conformed into his image. Everything about his life is my life. How he prayed, how he dealt with the weak and the downcast, how he responded in difficult situations. God has called us to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he would be the preeminent one. Every believer whom God has foreknown, he has called for the particular purpose, and that particular purpose is Christ-likeness. Everything is driving to Christ-likeness. All of this that we face, every pressure we're going through, is for the very purpose of pressing us into conformity into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's working out that salvation within us. This is what the believer has been called to. And it's that strong word of predestined like this. is God has determined, set in stone, he is going to conform his people into the image of Jesus Christ. Because, again, for the glory of the Son. Think about that. To have the firstborn among all many brethren to have the preeminent spot. I mean, think about this. 
the, you know, back in my simple little illustration, it'd be like, Mike, well, there are a lot of great basketball players during that time. If I picked one of those other basketball players, Michael's no longer as great. Someone else. Well, think about the Christian life. There is no one else more important than Christ. No one else. We war with that in our own hearts, kind of saying, well, I've got a little throne on the side. Let's just put a stool over there for me. And you can have the throne. I'll put the stool right next to you. So take a little glory for myself. No, we have to work hard every way, conformed into the image of Christ so that he is the preeminent one because this is what we are destined to. And anyone who in theology or practice would war against that, they're pra- they are warring against God's sovereign design to conform us into the Son. Leads to the next one, verse, 20, or verse 30. The third one, we are called. We are called. So these whom he has predestined, these he also called. This word called is so broad. Um, you know, it's broad because there's a general call. So there is a call in which creation is making known uh, about God and his glory. We saw that back in Romans chapter 1. There's that calling which God is saying throughout creation that there is a God, his power is on display, his invisible attributes are demonstrated throughout creation. We can see that there is a God. So there is a sense, a general call from creation, but it can't save And then there is uh, what theologians call a special call. This is the sharing of the gospel indiscriminately to everyone. Every time you and I, in obedience to the scriptures, go out and preach the gospel, every time we go out and preach to everyone we see, we are, in that case, demonstrating the special call. We are communicating God's revealed revelation to all people and seeing the response. But then, and I think the emphasis of this particular passage, because of the effect, is then the effectual call. When the word is preached, the word of God preached, heard by the sinner that the spirit of God takes and converts the heart to which the person calls out in faith upon God. That calling here is exactly what Paul brings out. Those whom God has predestined, he also called. He calls. I love this word call because it could just mean invite, but there's more to it. It is commanded, turn, come, believe, repent. There are commands in the gospel, a command to turn, a command to believe, a command to turn away from unrighteousness and turn to the living God, a command to come. It's a call. I know some have wanted to present the salvation of well, if I just paint the beauties of God, everyone's going to be so overwhelmed that they'll just naturally drop what they're doing and just going to love God. That's not what God says here. He says he calls. That is, the, he is calling the will. He is exhorting the will. He is, in this sense, meaning of calling is that God is going out and effectually drawing his people to himself through the preaching of the word of God. And I love this for us because we don't know who the called is. We don't walk around and say, well, are you called? I don't know. Uh, all we know is this, that we are to be faithful to his commands, to go preach the word. I mean, Romans, that's again what the Romans, as we're going to see in 10 and following, is describing uh, as we preach the word, that it's through that word the hearts are transformed. 
So we go, the calling then, so God draws his people to himself because he has called to them. Next word there then is he also justified. So these whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. I love this. Here's again, theological dictionary of the New Testament. It says this, justification by faith is a forensic legal term Related to the idea of acquittal. Justification refers to the divine act whereby God makes humans who are sinful and therefore worthy of condemnation acceptable before God who is holy and righteous. More appropriately, described as justification by grace through faith. This key doctrine of the Reformation asserts that a sinner is justified and brought into a relationship with God by faith in God's grace alone. The glorious truth is this, those whom God has foreknown and predestined and called, he justified. And I love this term, justified, because there are two aspects to this term that is so rich. First of all, there is the pardon aspect that God has, has taken away our debt. And I can tell you, if that alone God did, it was worthy of praise, but certainly not as great as what he has done in justification. I mean, we can't atone for one sin, let alone a lifetime of sins. We can't atone for any transgression. And certainly it would be a marvelous grace that God would wipe our debts clean. That's the idea of forgiveness or pardon is the wiping of our debts clean, that you are, at a, you are now at an innocent state, guiltless. There's no condemnation anymore because you have been, that, that sin has been forgiven. But that's not the full picture of justification. Justification is more than that. God has granted to us the righteousness of Christ. So that God has taken all of his righteousness, his righteousness that was his as being God, very God, and his as he lived under the law as a man, that righteousness is credited to our account. So that God looking at us sees us as if we never sinned, as if we never turned against him, as if we never rebelled, as as if we never loved ourselves more than him. He looks at us as if we loved God all our life. And he removes our guilt entirely in Christ. This is justified. This, when he says that he sets his love upon us and determines to show love, he also then predestines to conform us into the image of son. He calls us to the gospel and then he justifies us. He gives us the righteousness of God and he causes us to stand rightly before him so we're not pulling back. And frankly, if he, if he just wiped my debts clear, I would be saying, wait till the very last second because I'm going to mess it up in like a minute or less. So just try to, try to keep up with that just perfection and holding the standard of perfection. I couldn't keep up. But that he justifies, that he credits us with the righteousness of Christ, that he has now set us free is, again, the great benefit that we're seeing in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Free to live by the Spirit now, free to live in newness of life, free to live 
uh, with our minds set on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. This leads us to the last glorious truth. Then, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now listen, this glorification. It's the last stage in the process of salvation, namely, the resurrection of the body at the second coming of Jesus Christ and the entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. In glorification, believers attain complete conformity to the image and likeness of the glorified Christ and are freed from both physical and spiritual defects. Glorification ensures that believers will never again experience bodily decay, death, or illness, and will never again struggle with sin. This is where God is taking us to glorification, to the full deliverance, so that we will be in experience what we are only anticipating in position right now. We will be made complete. Now think about this as, again, the believer in our own salvation. This is where God is driving us to. He's driving us to this ultimate prize of glorification. Love the words. We're glorified in the, we'll be given a body conformed to the image and likeness of the glorified Christ freed from both physical and spiritual defect. I mean, that alone is a marvel. The fact that physical defect is removed, any physical suffering is gone. Certainly the older we get, the more and more that truth becomes more and more glorious. And then there's even spiritual defect, all the lack of knowledge, all the lack of understanding, all the lack of wisdom. That is taken away in glorification. And the believer will never again experience the bodily decay, never, never again experience the decay and weakness that comes as we grow older. But the greatest part, and we'll never struggle with sin again. Great and marvelous privilege that God in this glorious chain is working marvelously, directing us to this particular point. So how do we think about this then? I was just thinking about this marvelous chain. I want us to see in this passage, back to this theme, that God is actively at work, corporately among us, conforming us to the image of the Son. Everything that's happening in our lives, when the personal temptation is to pull away and isolate, we say, no, I need to be with God's people because God is conforming me and going to use other brothers and sisters to help me in this work. But in the midst of that, it is for this very purpose, I am in this situation being conformed into the image of his son. I think about this just in this perspective of your trial and suffering. I mean, it's easy for our hearts to run in trial and suffering to say, why me? Why did I get this bad dealt, deck dealt? How come I'm the only one suffering and my brother over here, nothing's happening to him. Everything's going well with him and, and I'm over here weeping and suffering and, you know, difficulties. You know, I'm taking three steps backwards and he, he's running ahead. Why? 
And this is a moment where our questions need to be is this, what is God doing in this situation to conform me into the image of his son? How can I be like Christ in this situation? Because that's the good that God is driving for in every one of our difficulties and every one of our challenges. And sometimes the good involves us reaching out and helping others. Sometimes the good is, involves receiving from others. Sometimes the good comes as we are lifting up one another in prayer and, and reading the scriptures. All of this, God is working for that ultimate purpose, of transforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, when you are heading through your pressures and difficulties, Is there anything more comforting to know than Christ on display in that difficulty? There's nothing more comforting. In a difficult aspect of marriage, in a difficult trial in church or anywhere else, when Christ is on display in you in that moment, there is great hope because that promise of glorification. Yeah, this is just a little taste. You saw a little Christ-likeness now, wait for glorification because then you're going to see the full package. You know, when you see a little bit of Christ now, a little bit of that grace applied, a, a little bit of that justification evident in my life, a little bit of that, that love that God has set upon me in the trial as it starts to squeeze out, and I'm just anticipating the fullness of it in glorification. So it gives us hope. And I'll tell you this, if you're lacking hope, if you're despairing in your trial, if it is overwhelming for you, it's because you're not putting Christ as that preeminent one in that issue and you're resisting being conformed into the image of his son. And that's why it's despairing in the moment and disappointing and seemingly overwhelming. And you want to get back on track in regards to having hope and joy and excitement again, we get back to coming in line to this not seeing that problem or difficulty as some obstacle keeping me from joy, but see that problem and difficulty as God's means of grace to conform me into the image of his son. Probably what my wife thinks when she rolls over and says, dear, thank you. You are the means of grace that God is using to conform me to the image of her son. But in the moment... I tell her, I am glad to be that instrument for you. <laughs> the joy, again, is this promise before us, this, this, this golden chain of salvation, as the Puritans called it. God set an abiding love, an eternal love upon us. And setting that eternal love upon us, he says, I have a purpose for these people, and it's conform them to the Son, that the Son would be honored. And in that, he says, I call these ones, I effectively reach out, and I am justifying them, that they would ultimately receive glorification. We have not yet reached that final stage, and I'm praying that you're receiving and understand the confirmation that this is true of you. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these incredible truths, so rich for us to see and understand But indeed, they are so powerful and practical for us in the midst of our trials and difficulties, in the midst of our own stubbornness, they expose our own hearts. When we are are hardened to your word and hardened to your ways, we're just reminded 
that there is indeed a good purpose in all of these things. And that purpose of being conformed to the image of the Son, we just realize how far short we have fallen of Him. Sometimes surprised by that very discovery. But we also rejoice that in this discovery, and as we turn and we yield to you, we find great joy, great comfort, great peace, great anticipation, because your grace is richly on display. So comfort our hearts, fathers. We work our way through this text. May you strengthen us so that we have a kind of spiritual courage and strength to keep keep pressing on. And may there be the collective accountability that comes in the body of Christ as we minister to one another to keep pressing one another on so not to grow weary in doing good so that in all things our Lord would have a chorus of praise from many members of Saving Grace Bible Church who strive to make Christ preeminent. In your glorious name we pray, amen.